0: Thank you for watching, tuning in. We appreciate you, and if you're in the area, please come see us. We'd love to meet you and see you in person. For our our regulars that are out tonight with sickness or other reasons, we greet you and pray for you as well in Jesus' name. So amen, amen, amen. Well, I'm excited about all God is doing. How about you? Already this year, great things are happening, and I am believing for greater and more things to continue happening, so hallelujah. Do want to mention this before our uh, children's staff and youth uh, teams all uh, separate out. I, I know we will have many of our staff helping, but I do encourage you to watch these uh, or listen to them on the podcast, whatever uh, way you can, the Wednesday night services, because we're doing a two-month series on reaffirming the fundamentals, and if there's questions you have, I want to have you to be included in that, because we're doing a uh, two different times at the end of each month, January, February, we will do a panel to answer some of those questions, like a Q&A opportunity, so if you've got questions, please text me, uh, and and those of you that are, are going out tonight with the different staff, uh, please, you know, watch, and, and if you've got questions, by all means, send those as well, and uh, we want to minister that to you. So at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss our children's and uh, our youth ministries. God bless them. Thank you for all who serve faithfully. We appreciate your hard work. Amen, amen. And if the others that are here with me tonight, as well as of course those online, we're going to be going to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll also be reading from 1 Timothy and chapter number 3. Amen. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, For I would that you know what great conflict I have for you for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all the riches, of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. I want you to just hone in on that phrase for just a minute. Uh, And of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And turning over to Second Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy rather, not 2. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, i want to read that verse of Scripture as well. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And with these two uh, passages as our bedrock and foundation tonight, I want to start this series by teaching this message, reaffirming the fundamentals God is one. Amen. Lord, this is your church, not ours, not mine. You and your word alone saves, delivers, and heals. So now on the authority of your word, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We know it is anointed and appointed for this hour and moment. So let that anointing fill this place, Lord. I pray, Jesus, that you would do a great work and let your word go forth, confirming it with signs following. Let me walk in your spirit and not in my flesh. And everyone said, in Jesus' name, Amen. When Isaac came along after his father, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that he redug the wells that his father had dug because the Philistines had filled them with earth. As he redug these wells, he also named them the same thing his father had named them. And in that principle of this reaffirming the fundamentals, this is our 25th year as a church. On April 18, 1999, the Tonys launched the Church of Omaha, and we're here until 2010 when my wife and I came, and we've been here since. They launched it on the fundamentals of the Word of God, upon the apostles' doctrine that we hold dear, and one of those fundamentals being the oneness of God. And so, as we, if you will, redig the wells in our 25th year, we're going to call it the same thing. Amen. If holiness was important 25 years ago, it's important now. If the oneness of God was important 25 years ago, it's still important today. If the essentiality of the new birth message was vital 25 years ago, it's still vital today. Amen. And so this, these two months will be reaffirming those fundamentals. And my hope is that I will be able to preach and teach to you not only the what, but why we believe what we believe. Amen. Now, some of these are called mysteries. For example, both Colossians and 1 Timothy use the word mystery, and if you only use the English definition of the word mystery, you may think of it as mysterious or ominous, something that can't be understood. But when you define it biblically, you realize that the mysteries of God are intended by Him to be understood, taught, and applied. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I will explain a mystery to you. In other words, he's saying, it's not a mystery anymore. Let me explain. Here's the definition. Therefore, you can and must understand God's mysteries. They are solved. Hallelujah. And God wants everyone To comprehend them. For those whom God has called to preach, and there's a couple in this room tonight, and maybe a few watching. God wants us who preach and teach His Word to be faithful and wise stewards, sharing them with His church. I can't preach my opinion. I can't preach my thoughts. I have to preach and teach what thus says the Lord. Amen? Those who claim to worship the one true God, but stop at Malachi, will never understand the purpose of what they read, because the Old Testament is Christ-concealed. However, equally, those who only read the New Testament will never realize the beauty or meaning of Christ's first coming, because the New Testament describes Christ as revealed. Therefore, it is imperative to study the Bible wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, recognizing that there are 63,779 cross-references from Genesis through Revelation, linking and interconnecting the entire Bible. Therefore, you cannot understand one verse apart from the whole. So, thank you for being on this journey. You're a captive audience, but you chose to be here. Amen. I actually said a captive audience at a jail ministry one time, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, probably not the right thing to say. (laughs) But you chose to be here tonight. My prayer is that you experience the unveiling of God's truth, and as you listen and or take notes, whatever your custom is, I pray that God will help me to prove myself a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. Let me explain that by reading to you 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of in stewards that a man be found faithful. So I want to be a faithful steward of God's mysteries over these next two months. And of course, always, but especially as we go into this series also in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 1 and 2, therefore seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, this is Paul talking about himself and other preachers, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. God. And so those two verses as well, those two passages are, are like the, the right and left hand, if you will, of the potter's wheel guiding me as we mold and shape this series. So with that brief introduction, let me say this plainly and clearly right out of the bat God is the only one of an only kind. He is invincible, incomparable, infallible and incorruptible he always was and he always will be God is God alone and I am thankful for that there are days when if I was God and had lightning bolts to fling at people oh Lord help us especially slow drivers my Lord Jesus have mercy Right, Brother Allen, you were with me today. There was a slow driver. I just blessed him in Jesus' name and went around him when the time came. Hallelujah. I'm glad God is God alone because I'm not perfect and nobody say amen. I heard that. Listen, not not only is he God alone, watch this, he's God all one. You see, God, everything about Him, every attribute, every characteristic, every name, I found 991 of them. Every one of those can be summed up in the singular name, Jesus. Because through that name, God reveals every attribute, name, and characteristic. The mystery of God must be, Be the first one we study and understand. Because as I read in Colossians, as the Bible states, in that mystery is all of the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, God buries within himself all of those treasures so that anyone who wants to obtain them must first know God. Hebrews 11.6 It's impossible to please God without faith, but those who come to Him must what? Believe that He is, that He exists, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Oh, if you'll seek God, you'll find the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Therefore, to know God is to have access to invaluable and eternal wealth. So our journey tonight is going to begin at Psalm 115. Psalm 115 glorifies God, declaring He's invincible, incomparable, infallible, and incorruptible. It is a beacon of light in a world of evil darkness, offering hope in a despair-filled world. Let's start with God is invincible. The first three verses of, of Psalm 115 declare this. You see, God is too powerful to be defeated or overcome. Here's what's interesting. If you go to the book of Revelation, Satan is already prophesied to be defeated finally once and for all. Now, he's already defeated in that Christ came, crushed his head at Calvary, but he will be ultimately defeated for the last uh, enemy to be defeated is death according to 1 Corinthians 15. And he'll be cast into the lake of fire. He's already defeated. He's fighting a losing battle. Psalm 2 declares that God has already set up His King. So what He and what He's going to get the world to try to do by gathering them together is a futile effort. God is too powerful to be defeated or overcome. He's thus the only one worthy of all the glory. Which is why the psalm opens with a bold declaration, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but unto Your name. Give glory. I'm one of a kind. There are a handful of other men in this room. Right? And, and all of you ladies are one of a kind. I don't mean to say that you're not unique or, or beautiful in your own right. My point is, we're all one of a kind. However, God is the only one of an only kind. There's none beside Him. There's none before Him. There shall be none after Him. The psalmist then expresses that God is incomparable. God is without any equal. He's matchless. In these five verses, he contrasts the weakness of idols with the worthiness of the only one of an only kind. Regardless of how ornate the idol may be, they are vain and void because they are the works of men's hands. Number three, God is infallible. Psalm 119, 9 through 15. He's trustworthy because he cannot lie. He cannot make mistakes. He cannot be wrong. He never fails and he is always effective. The psalmist mentioned here, trusting the Lord three times, revealing that God is our help and shield and he blesses and increases those whom he loves. The psalmist focuses on those, uh, to, on these rather to show the Lord being mindful of his chosen people. Number four, God is incorruptible. This is Psalm 115, 16 through 18. He is not susceptible to corruption. He's not, especially to bribery. He is not subject to death or decay. He is from everlasting to everlasting. The psalmist reaches for the endless expanse of space, declaring God's eternal dominion. The Bible says the heavens cannot contain God, which is why they are the Lord's. Amen. Somebody say God is one. Jesus Christ was the visible image of the invisible God. This is why Jesus told Philip, he that hath seen me has seen the Father. I love Philip. Lord, show us the Father it will suffice us. When you see me, you see the Father. Here's what's interesting. Let's assume for a minute that a Trinitarian meets Jesus in heaven and says to him, It's good to see you, Jesus, but can you show me the Father? Would Jesus not say the same thing then? How long have you been in heaven and you don't know who I am? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's, the Bible says he's immutable, that means he cannot change. This is why, and this is how we can understand Jesus' explanation when he said, I and my Father are one. We just celebrated Christmas a couple weeks ago, right? Cards and church marquees uh, bore and heralded Isaiah 9-6. But if you stop to consider what Isaiah 9-6 really is saying, unto us a child is born, son is given. Who's that? Thank you. It, it's, it, then it starts, you know, government be don't pull his shoulders, right? Okay. His name shall be called? Counselor. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The, the wonderful counselor, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he's, he counsels us. He leads and guides us into all truth. It's wonderful. It's an, it, it's great transformative experience. Right. Well, <clears throat> so the Son is the wonderful counselor, the Holy Spirit. He's almighty, the mighty God. Wow, watch this one. Everlasting Father. The Son, Jesus, is the everlasting Father. And then he's the Prince of Peace, which means the author and the originator of peace. Hallelujah. So, if there is indeed a triune Godhead, then Isaiah 9.6 is wrong. But since God breathes out all scripture and cannot lie, the Trinitarian theory is false. False. And just as Jesus is the one true God manifested in the flesh, he is also the head of all those born again. The Bible calls him the firstborn of every creature. Jesus was der- uh, died, excuse me, was buried, and rose again. When you are born again, you repent, death. You are baptized, burial. And you speak with tongues, resurrection. That means Satan loses his headship in your life as Christ delivers you From the power of darkness, translating you unto his kingdom of light. This leads to the supremacy of Christ. Now, there's a mystery of Christ as well, and it's not that it's a different mystery. It's different in that it has different aspects. It highlights the incarnation aspect, which we're going to hit on a little bit of that tonight as well. The incarnation is God manifested in flesh. The supremacy of Christ is recorded in Colossians 1.16. And it demonstrates that by Him, through Him, and for Him, all things were created. Now this idea initially challenged the philosophy held by the Greeks and Romans. The Colossians believed and would have believed these ideas until they experienced salvation in Christ Jesus. And their sanctification would lead them to God's wisdom, opening their understanding of the truth. This teaching then aligns with all of Scripture, proving that God alone is the creator of all. And so this brings up a problem for those who subscribe to a triune view of God. If there are three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, Coexistent? Then which one of them created the world? Isaiah forty five eighteen says Yahweh created the world, but Ephesians three nine and Colossians 1, 16 says Jesus Christ created the world. So, which one created the world? Are we going to let them arm wrestle and figure out, or is there one God? I'm not doing this to be corny. I'm not doing this to be uh, uh, you know rude to that belief. I'm trying to show you the the fallacy of such a belief. As well, Yahweh in Isaiah 45, 21 says, I am the Savior and there is none else beside me. But John 1, 29 and 1 John 4, 14 says, Jesus is the Savior of the world. So is Jesus the Savior of the world or is Yahweh? Well, really, they both are. And here's how. Yeshua means Yahweh has become my salvation. So when God was manifested in the flesh, He was God, the, the, the visible image of God. The invisible God that they had worshipped, that they had declared, that they had sought for, was now walking among them in flesh. Hallelujah. So obviously the Bible is right, and humanistic and atheistic theories are wrong. Jesus Christ is God, thereby proving both Colossians and Isaiah correct. Let's remember that God's word is inerrant and infallible, so therefore I say this lovingly but boldly, let God be true and every man a liar. Unless God had become flesh and dwelt among us, you would never be able to comprehend his infinite glory. If God, Pastor Trevor, if God wrote the Bible explaining himself as he really is, as a spirit, we would have zero frame of reference to understand that. Let me explain that by saying this. If we were to go to, and and I'm not for sure how many may be left, but I've, I've heard and read that there are still jungles and places where remote places where people don't really realize that it's you know 2023 and they don't know what a cell phone is and, and, and other such things but let's even go back a couple hundred years and let's just assume that we can time travel and imagine we take an ipad or an iphone or a, you know a, one of our cars or something with us those people have zero frame what are you holding in your hand what is that thing right zero frame of reference The prophets, especially those who prophesied the apocalypse, the end times, were equal to this. They don't know what tanks look like. And so they they describe them as horses breathing up fire out of their mouths. It's the best thing to come up with. Because they have zero frame. We know what a tank is. But imagine if God spoke to us and, and somehow gave us a prophecy of the future a thousand years from now and showed us something that was going to be invented, we'd be like, I don't even know what that is. Right? Okay. I'm bringing that up because if God declared himself as he really is, we would not know. We read about the right hand of God. But does he really have a right hand? And I'm not trying to be corny and stupid here. I'm not trying to confuse anybody. My point is this. Where can you go that God isn't? The Bible says the hev- Solomon, at dedication of the temple, the heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain him. Where can you go that God is not? And so if the heavens are his throne and the earth of his... It, I mean, my goodness, right? It's, it's hard to... Okay, so we had to have Jesus come in a flesh body. Not just so that we could understand him but also that he could die and rise again. You see, the one true God became us, thereby becoming knowable, visible, and approachable. That's key. The Bible says he made himself a little lower than the angels. Hebrews seven twenty six says, literally, God became us. Our high priest became us. That coincides with... First Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, I believe, where it says how that you know, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become his righteousness. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus, and this makes him preeminent over everything. This also connects us back to Luke chapter 10, which Jesus himself said, all power in heaven And an earth belongs to me. So I have a question. And please, I'm not trying to be stupid or corny here. If Jesus has all power, if he is preeminent, then what are the Father and the Holy Spirit doing? They're like, they're moot. You know, when a president is in his final term, they call it a lame duck presidency. you know, Because he can't be reelected after two terms consecutively, right? So it's like, And I'm not, please, I'm not trying to be stupid. I'm not trying to be idiotic tonight. I'm not trying to mix in too much humor here. I'm just trying to get you to see there can't be two other because he's preeminent. He's first. All right. I think I've belabored that point good enough. Let's now talk about the fullness of God in Christ. All of God's fullness, his being, his essence, his nature is in Christ. Here's what we have to understand about Jesus, the dual nature of of God. As a man, he was hungry. As a man, he wept, right? As a man, he needed to rest. But as God, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. As God, he doesn't get hungry. You know, what what does a spirit eat anyway? Right? So we have to understand the dual nature of God. Jesus became flesh he did not God did not trifurcate himself I've heard people say I'm with you in spirit brother I appreciate the sentiment but you really can't separate your spirit from your body and soul and be here with me because if your spirit is not connected to your body and soul you're dead and if we're made in the image and likeness of God he's not trifurcating himself either and sending his you know body while his soul and spirit stay in heaven the monotheistic that's one God theism, the theos, God, mono one, monotheistic apostles recognized Jesus as the one true God John 13, 13 they called him master and Lord Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and said Jesus is both Lord and Christ Nathaniel when he saw him said you're the king of Israel Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, and watch this, while Jesus corrected many things, he even one time corrected Peter, he didn't call Peter a devil, he didn't call Peter Satan, but the spirit behind what Peter was doing, he said, get behind me Satan, he corrected him. When the disciples came back, even the demons are subject to your name. He correct. oh that's good, but don't take pleasure in that. Rejoice that your names are not uh, written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, hey, <laughs> I beheld Satan fall from heaven as lightning. He would correct. But did you know there's not one time in his earthly ministry that he ever con- corrected them for calling him God? Why? Because he was God. That's why Jesus himself was using the unutterable name, I am. That's what got him killed. When the high priest, you know, are you the son of God? I am. Blasphemed me and ripped off his cloak. Oh no, he wasn't blaspheming. He is and was God. Jesus used that phrase numerous times. When John wrote his first epistle, he referred to the Father's love and his soon appearing. John was not confused, and neither was he referring to a different appearance. John knew that Jesus is the Father. Because in the preceding chapter, John referred to eternal life in the Son and our confidence when Jesus returns. So if Jesus is the second person in the triune Godhead, and again, I'm going to ask these questions not to be ignorant or, or funny, but, but a Trinitarian would have to answer this. How did he become a seed to be conceived? Better yet, why would he do this? And while you're considering those two questions, since Almighty God is the Father, why did the Holy Spirit overshadow Mary? Wouldn't that make the Holy Spirit the Father of Jesus? And finally, we've already mentioned it, but how do you reconcile Isaiah's prophecy calling the Son the Everlasting Father? Again, I'm not asking these to offend, but hopefully to help someone to consider all the variables of a belief that did not even exist in Judaism or Christianity until 325 A.D. So often when we quote 1 Timothy 3.16, I read it tonight, People either forget or reject that the explanation of the mystery of God begins with, God was manifest in the flesh. They start with, oh, it's a mystery, the mystery of godliness. I'm like, whoa, whoa, okay, it it is, but first words, God was manifest in the flesh. There's your answer. It starts right there. That Paul called this mystery great does not suggest that it cannot be understood Instead, he's referring to the beautiful greatness of the mystery of God. Everything else in the verse acknowledges the wonder and power of Almighty God, and many other scriptures also prove and proclaim God's glorious mystery. Here's five of them John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and Truth, 2 Corinthians five nineteen. to wit God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation Hebrews 7 26 I referred to it earlier for such an high priest became us who is holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens in Colossians 2 9 for in him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily so the question becomes is Jesus in the Godhead or is the Godhead in Jesus and the answer is all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in Jesus That's why George Farrow in 1920 could write his famous song, It's All in Him. What many don't know about that hymn is that it cost him a lot of of persecution and it cost him a lot of of being uh, ousted from the organization he was a part of because he suddenly saw the light of the truth of the oneness of God. Hallelujah. I am... Now, the reason part of that phrase, I am, is so vital and important is this. Jesus said that if you do not believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. That's John eight twenty four. This makes the oneness of God eternally essential. Here's just a few of the I am statements Jesus said. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. John 8:12 I am the light of the world. In John 8:58 he said verily verily I say unto you before Abraham was I am. John 10:7 I am the door of the sheep. John 10:11 I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Revelation 1, 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty, by definition, The Almighty literally means there can only be one. And by Jesus claiming, I'm the Almighty, He's saying, I'm God. He is the beginning. He is the ending. He alone is God. In Revelation 1.18, I am He that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So since Jesus Christ is, I am How can there be others? God became flesh to redeem humanity so there cannot be more than one God. God does have a name and His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's just keep chipping away here. Revelation 4.2 John is lifted up and he looks into heaven, and the Bible says he sees one throne and one setting on the throne. One. Well, in Matthew 25, Jesus told us who that is. He says, when the Son of Man returns in his glory, he shall sit upon his throne. Okay, so we know who's sitting on the throne. Therefore, the scripture that says, well, isn't Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father? If that's literal, then Jesus is sitting on the floor. Because there's one throne and one sits on it. So it's not literal. It's metaphorical or figurative. Right hand implies power, authority. And that he is seated indicates he completed the the work or the task or the purpose. Does that make sense? Also that he is seated means that he reigns and rules. Boy, I wish I had time to go into all that. So, <clears throat> Jesus is the one God on the one throne. And, amen. All right. Now, I have a couple of questions that I'm going to ask, and, and they're somewhat rhetorical, but they're also something that I have asked other people who believed in a trinity uh, and attempted to get answers. In Acts twenty twenty eight, God says He purchased the church with His own blood. So the question remains: Where did the Spirit get blood? Because God is a Spirit. Well, we know where the Spirit got blood. God became flesh. The flesh died. Blood was shed. The church was purchased. This question and so many others demand answers from those who subscribe to the unbiblical Trinitarian theory. And I call it that because, number one, from the beginning he's one. And in the end he's still one. And it wasn't until 325 AD that we suddenly have a Trinity. Triune Godheads existed in other cultures. They would have multiple gods, but they would all of them, the Egyptians, the, the Romans, the Greeks, uh, all of them, the Indians would all have uh, three like supreme gods, um, and it was a mother and a father and a son, okay? like Zeus, Athena, and Apollo. Uh, that, that, that would be there would be their three. that would be a triune godhead of all the gods, and they were somehow the supreme. So there was Trinity in those other. Uh, places but not in Judaism and not in Christianity until 325 AD when supposedly Constantine converts and now he's a Christian and and now we're going to have a trinity and now we're going to create this universal church where we just bring everybody together and uh, amalgamate everything together and we'll just call it trinity and father son and holy spirit did you know in many of the other places uh, with the edict of toleration which was if you capitulated and you, okay, fine, we'll call it a trinity. Let's say you believed in Zeus, Athena, and Apollo. Zeus would be the father now. Apollo would be the son. And Athena, the mother, would be the Holy Spirit. That brings up an interesting parallel because there are some religions that actually worship Mary and venerate her to the place of Godhead. I won't get into that tonight uh, as much except to say It existed in other cultures, but not in Judaism and not in Christianity until that moment when people were forced to believe something in order to live. Now, many of them didn't. Many of them chose to stand up to and were persecuted for their faith. Thank God for those martyrs that would not do that. And when we see that throughout history. One of the most famous oneness uh, uh, apostolic martyrs was Michael Servetus in about 1400 when uh, John Calvin had him burned at the stake because he wrote a very explicit book saying God is one and claimed and him and, and um, Erasmus... In fact, Erasmus said... <laughs> Anybody who can read Greek can come away from reading the Bible and understand that there's only one God and Jesus is that God. Anyway, I'm trying not to throw too much history at you here and get anybody confused and all that. But the fact is, there have been people stand up for it and there's still people today. We're reaffirming the fundamentals. God is still one. And if the day comes that we have to be persecuted for that faith, I'm willing to be so because I am not capitulating to the demands of a false doctrine. Well, thank you. Amen. But Jeff and I are on the same page. The rest of you, I don't know what's going to happen, but me and Jeff are going to stand. (laughs) Hallelujah. Well, I know the rest of you are too. I'm just teasing. But he was the only one that said amen out loud. So praise God. Anyway. Okay. We now return you to your readily scheduled message. That was a little detour in history there. Um, One of the... By the way, did you know that even the devils believe that there's one God? James 5:19 says it that even the devils believe that there's one God, and they tremble. So the Godhead is not a mystery. The word of God affirms that God is one. Galatians 3:20 says that. One of the most famous passages that Trinitarians will go to, to uh, as proof of a triune Godhead is Matthew 28:19. So let's look at it in context together. Would you open your Bible with me to Matthew 28, verse 18? We're going to read 18, 19 and 20. OK? Oh, hallelujah. While you're getting it in your Bibles, um, if what we believe, if, if we get to the end of life and we've believed in God and we've believed in the new birth and we've believed in holiness and all these things, and we get to the end of life and there is no God and there is no afterlife, we've lost nothing. Do you realize that? We have literally lost nothing. Nothing. If, if we just turn back to dust and become food for worms and bugs and, you know, whatever, and fertilizer for soil, we, we've lost nothing. But if the atheist is wrong, and they get to the end of life, and there is a God, they've lost everything. They've lost eternity. I'm not suggesting that what we believe is false. I'm not even trying to hint at that. I'm just saying... I would much rather take the risk, if there was one, to believe in this. So Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, Here it is. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> if there is a triune Godhead, and there are literally three different, distinct, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent persons, if that's true, then I'd be very interested then to know how they who believe that would answer the following questions in verse eighteen. I would want to know that since Jesus has all power in heaven and earth and He's the Son, what power does the Father and the Holy Spirit have? And are they powerless? Again, not trying to be crude, just trying to read the Bible and, and come away with a, with a you know, clear belief here. If Jesus, the Son, has all power in heaven and on earth, then you have to deduce the Father and the Spirit uh, the, uh, um, Holy Spirit, are powerless. Let's go to verse 19. Although the terms Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are proper nouns, they are not names. They're titles. And since grammatically these three titles are prepositional phrases of the singular name, then I would ask them, what is the name that Jesus is referring to here? When you break that down, and I'm not a super good English major here, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm a father, and I'm a son, and I'm a husband. Those are prepositional phrases of my one name, Myron. <clears throat> Verse 19 as well. If Jesus wanted this to be the formula by which every person would be baptized, then why did none of the apostles baptize in the titles? And why did Peter get up and preach? By the way, the eleven stood up with him. Okay? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if that was wrong, Brother Mario, and it was supposed to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, any one of them said, excuse me, point of order, Mr. Chairman, hold on. Uh, Jesus actually said, right? Right? That didn't happen. So, by their silence, you get the idea of them going, amen, preach, glory. Okay. When you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that they baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, and so forth. Now, verse 20, is another question I would want to ask. Since Jesus is the one that is with us always, what are the Father and Holy Spirit doing? Again, I'm not trying to be coy or, or ignorant or anything else. So when you reconcile Matthew 28, 19, biblically, remember when I said at the very beginning about 40 some odd minutes ago how that you you, you got to take every scripture because there's 63,779 cross-references, right? We have to look at the whole of scripture. So when we combine what happened in Luke, him recording this same event, let's go there, Luke 24, 44. I'll go ahead and start reading it, but because of time, Luke 24.44, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, thus is it written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead of the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be in due, with power from on high. Mark also in sixteen seventeen said, In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. Peter, after he and John were arrested for uh, uh, praying for a man who was healed, the, the lame man, the beggar, they're brought before and they're persecuted he's asked to give his reply his answer his you know his defense if you will in court and here's what he says in acts 4:10 be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead even by him doth this man stand here before you whole this is the stone. He's referring to Jesus. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He's quoting Isaiah right there. Then he says, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Hallelujah! And that name is? So God... Has a name, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. All those attributes, He's Alpha and Omega, He's harmless, He's undefiled, all those characteristics and names. You know, I'm so glad, honey, that if if, if we were driving and, you know, all of a sudden come upon an accident or something, we don't have to go, okay, Heavenly Father, uh, you're the great I am. You're the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. We don't have to start quoting all of them. We can just say, Jesus. Hallelujah. I'm so thankful for that. When I say that name, I get everything that this book contains. Praise God. Okay. Josh had 17 pages of notes. I didn't think I was going to get through them, but I did. Wow. New world record. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, anticipating that there will be questions, we're not going to take them tonight, because on January 31st, the last Wednesday of January, and on February 28th, the last Wednesday of February, we will have more of a panel-style discussion. The pastoral team will be up here. Uh, and I will take your questions. Uh, and if not, I have plenty of anticipated ones. But I would prefer that if you have a question uh, tonight, we taught about oneness. Next week, I'm going to teach about the new birth and its essentiality. And and as we bring this to a close, so again, text me your questions. As we bring this to a close, I want to tell you just a quick, brief, uh, uh, true story. Happened a few years ago. Um, we were in Maine and uh, they have a a minister's retreat every year. I don't remember what month they do that in. Is it March or is it, is it March? Yeah, Uh, anyway, and so we went down for it. We were up in Caribou, we drove down. They have it in Bangor usually. And Brother um, Mooney was the uh, speaker that year. And he gets up and there's usually four sessions that the speaker will, will teach and minister in. And he tells a story that had just happened recently there in Indianapolis where at the time he pastored. And he mentioned how that while there one day, a very prominent leader from an evangelical Christian group, he was basically the David Bernard of his organization, denomination, called Brother Mooney and said, hey, I want to meet with you. Let's have breakfast. So they met not too far from Calvary, the church there. And he begins to tell Brother Mooney. He says, well, Mooney, you guys are right on, on oneness. You're pre nicene council. That's the 325 AD. He says, you're right. There's one God. And Mooney is like eggs falling off his fork going, "What? Well, we are. Yes, we are. And he starts taking the bite and he goes, you're right on name of Jesus at baptism. And Mooney's like, uh, y- yes. Yeah, yes, we are. He's, he's just shocked to hear this. And, and the guy keeps going. He says, you're right, and he names, and Brother Mooney says, well, he says, you know, my church is right around the corner. Let me go baptize you. Man, if you know that we're right, and you believe it, look, man, you're ready to go be baptized. You're ready to receive the Holy Spirit. And then this man looked at him, and says, and that's where we differ. We don't believe it's essential. Now, let me ask you a question. I, I don't, I can't, Maybe I need to get a doctorate to try to figure it out. No offense to anybody that has a doctorate, but you know, how in the world can you say what the apostolic brethren believe is correct, is right, not just historically, but biblically, and then say, oh, I don't believe it's essential. How can you call yourself a Christian? How can you use the Bible? How can you put God or His name on your marquee? And so... You're going to hear that word essentiality a lot in this series. And it's not that I'm trying to be overly redundant, but it's because of this. John 8, 24, regarding the oneness says, If you believe not that I am He, Jesus speaking, you will die in your sins. That sounds pretty absolute and pretty essential to me. And so I'm going to preach and teach the same. Does that make sense? It is essential. Let's stand together. So please, again, text me your questions. If you don't have my uh, uh, text, phone number, whatever, just just see me after. I'll give it to you. Uh, but please, I want to start putting together these questions for our panel discussion for the 31st and again the 28th. So, Lord Jesus, I have delivered that which you have given to me. And I pray now that it would resonate within our hearts and minds, that you would continue to illuminate to us the truth that we would see it, understand it, believe it, practice it, and apply it, as well as disciple others and share it with them in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you. I can't wait to see you again Sunday. Let's invite people. Let's take the You Were Notice cards and go see a, a co-worker, a friend, a classmate, a waitress, waiter, and let people know God loves them.